You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected to our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge or at our website, restoration-church.ca. Send us a message and we would love to hear from you. Probably most of us follow a, a news source, or whether it's through your social media, which is probably not the greatest way of getting your news. But regardless, you have sources that you follow news and Likely we follow news too much, but we can't help but be drawn to what goes on globally in our world. And then how do we process these things? How do we respond to them as Christians? We all have been following what's been going on between Russia and the Ukraine. And even I just checked this, this, just this weekend, um, but the conflict in Russia and the Ukraine, of course, trying to understand it politically and what's, you know, what's going on and all of those things is really difficult. But there's some things that are, that are not difficult to understand, but they're difficult to process how we respond to them. What is the answer in the city of, uh, I'm hoping I pronounce this correct, Mariupol, 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 I believe in the Ukraine, uh, already more than 10,000, not soldiers, but civilians have been killed in one city. Uh, and we've seen pictures of, of the burnt out vehicles, but the, the toll on that war and conflict has, is almost, it's hard to understand, you know? It's hard to understand that many people, innocent people that are not involved in a conflict whatsoever are, are killed and caught up in it. There's nothing they can do about it. You know, how do you, how do you process that, right? And, and this has been the story of human history. It's not, sometimes we, we think that the world is a, a, a worse place. If you think that, you just need to read history. Because it's been like this. <laughs> In fact, it's normal for that many people to, to die at the hands of a conflict that they had no involvement in and they were innocent, their lives were taken and it's not like they were fighting anything or fighting for something, but they were caught up in it. In fact, 10,000 is a low number in the story of history in our world. And how do you, what do you do with that, right? Especially in the life that I've had, that I've been privileged to have, like, I don't understand it. I've never seen things like that. I've seen suffering, but I've never seen that kind of suffering. For the next few weeks, we're going to think globally. We're going to take a look at our world and uh, through a series called The Nation's Rage, and we're going to be looking at a few psalms, not just Psalm 2, which if you have a Bible, that's where we're going to be today. So you can go to Psalm chapter 2. We're going to be looking at some other Psalms in some, in some weeks, some future weeks. And it's just going to be a short series. But not appropriate as we see these things happening on a global scale. How do we process these? How do we respond to them? But it begs the question before we begin and look, take a look at Psalm chapter 2. And today what I want to do is, is be a little bit more, I know we're in more informal, but not informal in the sense of, of, of not reverent, because we want to be reverent. While if we, even if we are more informal. Uh, what I'm going to ask is just there's going to be some times for you to kind of turn to the people around you and pray. 
just in a second, and then also at the end as we share some of these things. So I know we're not really used to that, and maybe you didn't come prepared for that, but that's what I'm going to ask you to do. Why think globally? Jared, who's got great resources, who works for Open Doors Canada, shameless plug, he didn't ask me to say that, but... um, not just because it's on our minds and there's so many things happening in our world all the time, uh, but it has some great resources about, about the value of praying and looking at the global church, not just our church here in Cambridge or the churches here in Cambridge, but how the global church responds to some of these things that we just we can't even fathom. So the first thing is this, why do we, why, why think globally, especially in a, as a church, thinking about global church? Well, we're encouraged by a global gospel, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ isn't for North Americans. It's for Africans, it's for Asians, it's for Australians, it's for everywhere in the world. You know, the story of Jesus isn't just for Canadians in the city of Cambridge. It is but it's also for the Ukrainians living in the city of Mariupol. They are struck by the same story. They tell the same story today that we tell. And last week, they told the same story of the death, burial, and resurrection and found hope and encouragement, just as we did in in Japan, in the Philippines, in Australia, in Nigeria, and all around the world. We tell the same story. And it's encouraging to us. If you've ever been cross-culturally, if you've ever done missions work or just cross-country, uh, cross-culturally and been to different churches, they might worship in a very different way. Their practices might be different, but they tell the same story. And it's really encouraging that the stories we tell and the book we read and the God we worship is a global God. Not just for us, but for the world. And we're encouraged that we're not alone. There are differences in life, but there's... So many similarities in our faith. That's the first one. If you got a piece of paper, that's the first one we're encouraged by, was to think globally, and that's what I'm going to keep challenging with you as the weeks go on, that we are encouraged by a global gospel. We tell the same story. Not only that, secondly, we are challenged, though. So we're encouraged by a similar story, the same gospel, but we're, now, we're also challenged by a wholly different experience. That people are living completely different lives than our own. Telling the same story. And we're challenged by the things that they go through that we haven't gone through. I've, I've never gone through some of the things the Ukrainians have gone through. Are going through right now. When we learn from them and how they handle adversity. And it changes our perspective. I think there was historically this sense even in, in, in worldwide missions. It was we need to go to the nations to show them how they approach God. To show them how we worship God. In a lot of ways now what we do is we're taking a look at the Christians around the world to learn from them. How do they respond? How do they worship that we can learn from? We're challenged by a different experience. It changes our perspective. And and especially in the Western world. When we think globally and not just ourselves, words like injustice, suffering, tribulation, persecution mean something. It's not injustice for your phone to die, right? The injustice of my iPhone, even though I hate Apple products, which I've said many times, which is why we couldn't get our MacBook working today. I think it's my hatred of Apple products. Not having lyrics on a Sunday morning isn't persecution. 
right? Like 99% of the world would love to have this, what we just take for granted here. Just the things that we, we take for granted, the comforts that we have. Words like injustice, persecution, tribulation, they mean something when we look at the global church. People who are going through serious things, not just having lyrics on a Sunday morning. Something more than simply frustration. They show us how we respond in faith. I want to, Jared sent me a few articles from Open Doors that, I just want to read a story. It's about a woman named Charity from Nigeria. It's called Charity Finds Hope Beyond the Violence. Charity, a young mother of four in northern Nigeria, leans over and picks up another ear of corn from a metal container to shuck alongside her two daughters, Patience and Elizabeth, and her son, Theophilus. Great names. She's wearing a redhead scarf. Seriously, I love those names. Uh, she's wearing a redhead scarf, and she's teasing Theophilus about something, which is a biblical name, if you didn't know. He laughs and flashes a bright smile, then shakes his head. The afternoon sun is intense, so they sit in the shade to shuck the corn. The wall of their mud brick home behind them with window shutters of corrugated steel is the same rustic brown as the ground at their feet. Beside them, there's a short wall made of thatched branches and a kit of pigeons, coos, and pecks the ground in the distance nearby. Here in Guyaku, a remote village in northern Nigeria, being a Christian comes with significant risk. More Christians are killed for their faith in Nigeria than in any country in the world. In addition... Violent attacks by Boko Haram and other Islamic extremist groups are common in the country's north and the Middle Belt and are becoming more common farther south. In these attacks, Christians are often murdered or have their property and means of livelihood destroyed. Charity and her children know this firsthand. They're survivors of a deadly Boko Haram attack on their village. It was the hot season, Theophilus says, when they came. Charity was in the bathroom cleaning up for the evening when her brother came running in the house. Put out the light! Put out the light! He shouted in hushed tones. That was the moment we found found out Boko Haram was attacking our village, Charity says. Boko Haram has long been one of the most infamous terrorist groups in the world. They view themselves as the ultimate expression of Islam, carrying out the true preaching and mission of the Muslim faith, which means fighting a holy war, war in their extremist view. Even the name Boko Haram roughly means Western education is forbidden. They believe anything outside of the radical interpretation of Islam is intended to be fought against and not accepted. I was scared, Theophilus shares. I thought that we wouldn't survive, so I grabbed my sister's hand and we ran. Charity grabbed her youngest daughter and quickly placed her on her back in a wrap. It was at that time that we ran away toward the mountains, Charity says. We were heading in the same direction when a motorbike came toward us. That was how I got separated from my children. I went with my little girl and my son ran in a different direction with his sister. Charity runs toward the mouth of of a cave and darted inside for shelter with others from the village. In the darkness, she whispered her children's names. No answer. She whispered again and again, Theophilus, Elizabeth. Silence. What if they killed my children? Charity thought in the darkness. The night in the cave was long. Finally, when day broke, everyone was quiet and shuffled cautiously out of the cave and started to walk back to the village to view the damage. On her way back, Charity heard that Boko Haram had killed some of her family members in the attack. It was devastating news, 
And all she could think about at that moment was her children. When I arrived home, I didn't see my children, Charity says. I couldn't even eat food or drink water throughout the day because there was no taste. And I was thinking if I drink this water and eat this food and my children are dead, of what use is the food to me? Weeks went by with no news. Fear overtook the village. There was no cell service and many thought the roads were too dangerous to travel. One day, alone in the house where they'd been living with her mother doing some chores, Charity heard her son calling out her name. When she looked out her front door, she saw her son and daughter walking toward her. I was so shocked and excited as I shouted their names, Charity shares. Seeing my children felt like a new dawn. Everything changed because my lost children were back. We shed tears of joy, Theophilus says. The reunion was profoundly moving answer to prayer. The struggle for charity and her children wasn't over. In many ways, it was just beginning. They needed to rebuild their homes, find food and shelter, restore their churches from the ashes, replant crops, and deal with the ongoing anxiety that Boko Haram was still out there somewhere. And would they attack again? It's real experiences of people around the world. And it puts things in perspective for us. Like, what is persecution? What is trial? What is tribulation? I need to learn my faith from charity, not the other way around. She has to go through things and keep her Christian identity that I've never had to go through. As we go through this series, in fact, next week I'm gonna, we're going to have printouts for you, a calendar every day that you can pray for a different part of the world and just it tells you how to, how to pray. What I wanted to do right now, as you remember those two things, that we are encouraged by a global gospel and we're challenged by a different experience. Right now, take two minutes yourself and just spend some time with God, with God between you and the Lord that this would be a time that we would be challenged in our faith really challenged in our faith. That we pray for the global church, firstly, that we pray for the global church, and that we would be challenged over this next month of what it looks like to think globally, globally and be challenged by the faith of others. Take two minutes right now and just spend some time between you and the Lord. God, now I pray for all of the churches gathered here on this Sunday, many of them in very different experiences than our own. I mean, I just drove to church, set up, and which is great. Some people risking their lives to gather with other believers to proclaim the name of Jesus. We pray for them. We pray for the struggle that they go through, that they wouldn't, uh, that they would have boldness to keep proclaiming the name of Jesus, that they wouldn't live in fear, but Lord, that you would protect them. Lord, I also pray that over the next month as a church, we would be seriously challenged. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to have boldness? We pray for this in your name. Amen. Why do the nations rage? It's a question that's asked at the beginning of Psalm chapter 2. And if you have a Bible, go to Psalm 2. It's a very human emotion. Not just anger, but anger that's become unhinged. See, anger, passionate anger is good when it can be corralled and controlled into good, just causes. In fact, many people who have done the greatest things in the world and fought for justice were because they were angry about injustice that was happening. 
Anger that can be controlled and corralled into good causes is a good thing. However, rage, it's like the bull that can't be controlled. You know, when you try and sit on it, it's just trying to throw you off. That's rage. It's a human emotion that many of us have experienced where you, you, you begin with anger, but you can't control it. It takes out everyone in its path. This very human problem can be multiplied to a national level, whereas we're seeing in the Ukraine, innocent lives are taken out like a bull, taking out whatever in its path without apology. Why do the nations rage? We're, we're appalled when it happens, but as I said before, <laughs> it's definitely normal. A problem that everyone sees, but no one seems to be able to solve in our world. Psalm 2 says this. Why do the nations rage? The people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He speaks to them in their wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the, wor- of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. His wrath is, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There's some nuances here that are important to notice, and we don't have a lot of time, so I'm just going to kind of talk through this and just kind of briefly share some things from Psalm chapter 2. There's some nuances here that are really difficult for us to understand what's going on in this psalm. Why the nations rage and how do we respond? Why do the nations rage and people's plot in vain? Now, I don't think there's a specific event being referred to here. You know, the the kings of Israel, I, I don't believe there's like this specific event that this, this is more a picture of authorities in the world and how God's people respond to those authorities. But the picture is, is, is framed in the first three verses almost like a conspiracy. It's like an international conspiracy. It's, it's like the United Nations meet together, but in this dark corner, there's, there's different leaders of the, which I'm sure has happened, well, there's different leaders of the world that are kind of conspired. They're, they don't want to serve or submit to this broader leadership. That's what's going on here. The peoples, they're plotting in vain and conspiring against the, the created order that God has created for the nations to fall under. And it's addressing powers that don't acknowledge the king or God's anointed, which I'll get to in a second. Now, the first interpretation of this is that Maybe this is for the kings of Israel, the Davidic kings. If you have any, know any history of Old Testament, you'll know that God had chosen, which we'll get to in a second. I know there's things coming because this is really important. God had chosen a people for himself and that kings were established and God made a promise to David that through you, the kings of Israel, specifically Judah, would remain on the throne forever. 
So the first interpretation is this for the Davidic kings. However, I think it's clear that there's a lot more here than meets the eye. And this isn't specifically for that. But it's for the, those who do not follow the rule of God. Now, I don't think it's talking about salvation, but it's practice. That there's a way that God has created leaders to lead and in a way submit to. And when it says, why did the nations rage, and how do we understand that? In verse 3 it says, this is what those who are raging say. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The attitude of why the nations rage from this passage in verse 3. It seems that the attitude of these leaders is that submission is viewed as slavery. Like having a higher authority than myself is slavery. And freedom to them is I can do what, what I want as a leader. And throughout history, there's been many raging leaders that refuse to be held accountable, that refuse to submit to other authorities, namely God himself, and the ethics that God has determined to lead with, and said, I, I'm going to lead how I see fit. That is a recipe for disaster. To throw off all submission, it's viewed as an annoyance. It's a limit to my own influence and my own power. The basis of this rebellion in this psalm is who is Lord? Who's in charge? It's how nations become unhinged and it trickles down. I can't take a ton of time with this, but here's from national leadership to church leadership to even family leadership, here's a principle from this passage that it's addressing. When you lose submission, things go wrong that quickly. Me as a pastor, if submission to me is an annoying hindrance holding me back from doing what I think needs to be done, things go bad fast if I refuse to be held accountable to anybody. See what's going on in this passage? And that goes from national leaders, to provincial leaders, to church leaders, to in your own family. If you, when you lose submission, things go wrong. When you have absolute control, and accountability is not a gift, it's an obstacle. Here's the deal, guys. Arrogance for leadership, more than anything else, should be viewed as a red flag. If someone is arrogant, they're not a good leader. Now, sometimes in our, like, very, you know, uh, what works, like, he's a guy who can just get it done. He's an arrogant jerk, but he gets the job done. Arrogant people should not be leaders, okay, in any sphere. In fact, arrogant people as leaders do dangerous things because they take, a, take advantage of people and do what they want. And they refuse to be held accountable for it. When you lose submission, things go wrong. Things rage. Fathers, as you're leading your family, if you refuse to be held accountable, man, things go wrong. Secondly, here's the other thing why nations rage. Firstly is arrogance. Secondly, when a leader becomes almost messianic. When a leader... A, a, human leader becomes 
messianic. The context, which we're going to get to in a second of this passage, I believe is messianic. That it's saying you submit to Jesus as the Messiah, the one who can really save the world. The problem is they didn't want to submit. And so the context is leaders who are saying, I can do what I want, and I will save you from all your problems. When a leader becomes almost messianic, boy, things go badly. And we are so easily deceived about it. You know, there's things that we get annoyed with, that, that, or not just annoyed with, but, but uh, problems that we experience in life. And then we look at a leader who promises to fix all of our problems. We're like, boom, I'll get behind that guy. But actually, that's when we're deceived. Because now we've made a leader who's just supposed to humbly lead people into the Messiah himself to fix all of our problems without me having to do anything. We're so easily deceived. Man, throughout history, guys, leaders don't just do bad things. It's not like leaders get, rise up and they just start doing bad things. People follow them first, which enables them to do bad things. They scratch the itch that everyone wants to hear. Say what wants to be heard. I, I just need to say this, and I can't take a lot of time. We tend to trust information that comes from people from our own camp. You know, if you're like more conservative leaning, you trust without question conservative sources. Or, or I should say, we should be more careful from sources that scratch the itch that we want to be scratched. Because our blinders are up. We believe it. If you tend to lean more progressive, we tend to just trust and believe progressive sources. When it should be the other way around, or not trust, but we should, be, we should, have, uh, uh, we should be more discerning with information that comes from our own camp. Because if you lean more conservative from a progressive source, you've, you've already, you know, you've, like you're looking for them to say something wrong. You know what I mean? Like you're waiting for them to say something wrong. Like wait, wait a minute. And it's the other way around. If you tend to lean more progressive and you're listening to a conservative source, you're not going to be fooled. You're looking for them to say something wrong. Guys, we are so easily deceived by people who, want, who scratch our itch that are like the Messiah to us. We need, to be, we need to be very careful. Careful of the arrogant. And careful of the messianic, the ones who put themselves forward as the ones who are going to save us from all of our problems. That's why in verse 11 it says to those leaders, Therefore, O kings, or verse 10, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. See, God addresses the arrogance of these rulers with, in verse 4 and 5, it says he laughs. He holds them in derision. It's almost like a mockery. And this response seems rather jarring to us as followers of God because, wait, really, God, you're laughing? It seems out of character of God. It seems jarring to us. But the point of the psalm is that God is unmoved by political threat. So you can set yourselves up and threaten to think that you're not held accountable to me, but no one can get, be outside of God. You're held accountable to God. I'm God. I'm creator of the world. No matter what threat may be happening, we take comfort knowing that God is not threatened. That's why we do not panic as Christians. We do not run in fear. We do not respond in fear. We do not respond in desperation. We don't need to save God. We don't need to save Christianity. God has done that for us. 
God is not moved by threat. I know I'm flying through this, but I'm getting to a point here. Verse six, God says, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. When he says I've set my king, the assumed meaning that we might, when we read this, those of us who have been involved in the church know Old Testament might be David. I've set David on the throne. And the line of David. Because in verse seven, it says, I will tell of this decree. It's almost like an MOU, a memorandum of understanding. Here's the promises that I guarantee, and this is what I'm gonna give you as you lead for those who are the king. It was a document that was given to them during a royal coronation when his king was installed as leadership. Like, here's what I'm guaranteeing you in your rulership, and this is what God says. This is what I'm guaranteeing you. It says, you are my son. I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. It says, you will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The point is, in contrast to the worldly powers of, of this world, they're like, they're like a, a pottery compared to the kingdom that I have given you, which is like iron. It won't be moved. It can't be destroyed. That doesn't seem to fit, though, any king that we read of in the Old Testament. They all died. In fact, many of their kingdoms were shattered, like pottery themselves. And even though David, to a degree, flourished, it's not like he was given the world. It doesn't seem to fit with any Davidic king that we read in the Old Testament. That's why I believe ultimately Psalm 2 is not for them. It's for us as well. I believe the king that's referring to is, of course, Jesus. And I believe the kingdom is not referring to the kingdom of Israel, but the kingdom of God itself. A greater kingdom than just nations that we know. This wasn't being told of any nation as we know it, but it was a restoration of the entire world through the kingdom of God. It's why the anointed one was ultimately the Messiah, which means the Christ, the King. It's imperative in understanding this psalm and other psalms that we're going to read before we, we try to, as Christians, set up like a modern-day Israel that's going to make people serve God. That's a, that's a limited view of what's talking about here in Psalm chapter 2. <laughs> to try to plan world domination through setting up a Christian form of Canada, that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the kingdom of God with Jesus as king. Now, I have to go through this because this is imperative for understanding passages like this before we start planning world domination. Israel was unique in that it was chosen by God to be his people. It was called a theocracy, which meant God ruled. It was like God was the king and they followed the ordinances of God. That's what it meant to be a theocracy. And it was unique in that no other nation had that. The people of God were chosen. This is important. The people of God were chosen by God. Not primarily for salvation, but primarily for purpose. Okay? The kingdom, the people of God, Israel was chosen by God, not primarily for salvation, but primarily for purpose. That they were to bring salvation of God to the rest of the world. It wasn't like God chose Israel and said, you are the saved people and the rest are unsaved. It was, Israel, I've chosen you to bring my salvation 
extend it to the ends of the world. You were meant to be this model nation that showed what it looks like to obey God and live the way God intended you to live so that people could see the way you live and want that same God themselves. That's what it meant to be chosen by God. To bring salvation to the world. Israel was to display God, to show the world holiness. In Deuteronomy 7, it says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. And then it says in Exodus 19, although the whole earth is mine, God speaking to to them, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The, The inference of priests is that you were the one bringing God to the people. So this nation was supposed to bring God to the rest of the world. It wasn't supposed to hoard God so to say, we're the chosen ones and you're not. But that's how it was interpreted. God meant to that people to be a kingdom of priests. You are to bring me to the rest of the world. In Abraham, in Abraham the series that we just finished in, in, in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 12, God chooses Abraham. And Abraham has to respond in faith to God. It wasn't primarily about salvation, but God chose Abraham to bring his salvation to the rest of the world. Through you, I will bring blessing to the ends of the world. It wasn't just about Abraham. Choosing was about the rest of the world. Through you, all nations on earth will be blessed. Israel was chosen to bring God's salvation and his blessing, but they didn't. They wanted power and domination, but they weren't faithful to God. Ultimately, the chosen one, the anointed one, would come. As it says in Isaiah 46, who would be a light to the nations. In Isaiah 49, a salvation to all the world to bring a kingdom unlike any other kingdom, the kingdom of God itself. Even at Jesus' birth, angels gathered, and we've talked about this before, but angels gathered at his birth, which was his coronation into the world. Like this, You are the king of not just this tiny little nation, but the entire world. Angels, we, we usually picture, and even murals that are painted, we picture angels singing like the hallelujah chorus at his birth. No, no, the angels, it says, that was an army who is ready to do battle against the kingdom of darkness, saying, the king has come, we're going to now do battle and bring a kingdom unlike any other kingdom that this earth has ever seen. It's called the kingdom of God. The angels gathered to declare war on kingdoms of darkness, the one who would truly reveal what Israel was supposed to do, the one who would truly reveal God to the world. And of course, the story of Israel is that (laughs) when they read Psalm 2, They thought we're the ones who were going to dominate. The rest of the world is the conspirators. But what was true about Israel when Jesus came? Which side of the line did they fall on? They were the conspirators. They conspired against God's anointed. They showed themselves to be conspirators themselves. In Acts 4, which I'm going to read in a second, Acts 4, when the early church began, they they applied this, the nations of the earth conspire against God's anointed one. They applied it to Israel. That's why when the warning says, I think, I don't think it's random. The warning to the kings of the kings of the earth when it says, kiss the son, 
kissing the son was an act of allegiance. Of course, in Israel, the kiss was used by a man named Judas as an act of defiance, as an act of conspiracy, not as an act of allegiance. Of course, we know the end of the story that Jesus defeats the greatest enemy more than any of the enemies in the world. He defeats the greatest enemy, death itself. And as Israel was commissioned, he commissions his followers to bring this good news to the ends of the earth. In 1 Peter 2, verse 9, not applied to Israel, but to the church, he says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We have this special role of declaring the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Here's I say all that to say this. We can't, as Christians, limit ourselves to God favoring present nations over others. That's not what Psalm chapter 2 is talking about. We're not supposed to bring Israel back. We're supposed to see the kingdom of God move forward. The kingdom of God is not Canada. The kingdom of God is not the United States. Guys, It's talking about the church here. We as followers of God's anointed Jesus, we are that holy nation, the kingdom of priests, and we fight against kingdoms of darkness through the acts and character of our Savior Jesus. That's what this, I think, is referring to. If you could, as we close, go to Acts chapter 4, because this is really important. Acts chapter 4. I know that was a lot of history, but to understand these passages is really important. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, there's, as the church is just beginning, which we are going to be studying part of the book of Acts this summer, but as the, as the church began, has its inauguration, and here's the followers of Jesus, what happened was Peter and John are arrested for, for proclaiming uh, the gospel, what Jesus has done. They're arrested for it. But it says this in Acts 4, verse 23. Go down to 23. The early church gathered afterwards to pray, and it says when they were released, Peter and John, they went to their friends, so they gathered together, reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them, and when they heard it, because the chief priests and the elders say, okay, we'll let you go, but don't, you can't, you can't keep sharing this gospel. You can't keep talking about this kingdom of God. Nonsense. It says, they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God, and they prayed to God, and they say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, he quote, and they quote Psalm chapter 2, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then they say this, For truly in the city they were gathered together against your servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And this is what they pray, and this is where I want to leave us. And I want to spend a few moments in prayer just with the people around you as we close. Because here's the two things that I want us to pray for as we begin this series, and how how do we respond to a world in rage? He says this, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. That's what they prayed for. To continue to speak your word with all boldness.
They saw the rage. They heard the threats. They say, God, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Now I want to emphasize to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Not just whatever opinions I come up with, but continue to speak your word with all boldness. Guys, we have, in a world that is on fire and is raging and people are like, what is the answer here? We have the greatest hope to offer and it's not Canada. It's called the kingdom of God. And we can't shut up about it. No matter what threats may come our way. The people in Ukraine have, as even in Nigeria and all the places in the world that are experiencing persecution, they have an amazing opportunity to say, you know what, our hope is not in any nation in this world. It's called the kingdom of God. Because the raging of the nations only ceases with the arrival of the true kingdom of God, not in any else. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, when we say, God, your kingdom, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're saying, this is the answer to the rage that your kingdom would be here and that the anointed one would rule. We can't shut up about it. Grant us favor to speak with boldness. Your word, not what a news anchor has told you, but what the word of God has told you, that we would speak with boldness your word about the kingdom of God. Secondly, we need to pray that we would be bold. Secondly, it says, while you stretch out your hand, and this is important, while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus, that while you stretch out your healing hand in the name of Jesus, that's what we would pray for, that Jesus would, as we move forward, that Jesus would heal this world through the incoming of the kingdom of God. Contrast with those, it says, that, that that's what's used in the name of Jesus, that it would be a healing hand. Contrast with those who have used the name of Jesus for their own power and their own gain, which is Literally, the definition of blasphemy is to use the name of God for ourselves and for our own plans and for our own powers. Beware of any leader who uses the name of God for their own power. But the name of Jesus is to be used for his healing and his power. The violence of this world was taken out on Jesus that he would bring healing and restoration to it. The kingdom of God is the restoring of this good creation when we invoke the name of Jesus, we're calling for his kingdom. Not ours. Where he is king. 